0: J.R.R. Tolkien, the author of the trilogy Lord of the Rings. He said after writing that that there was just one part in the trilogy that he would look back on, reread and it would bring him to tears. Do you know what part it is in the story? It's the part where Gollum is taking Sam and Frodo and basically like luring them to the spider and Gollum comes to take them to bring them into her leer like he's handing you know them taking them to a bad place and um, Gollum comes and Sam and Frodo are sleeping and he has this moment where he he kind of he starts to relent and he's like no oh no I I can't do it I shouldn't do it oh no no And uh, Gollum, in the story, if you remember, um, whenever he's kind of in his evil place, his eyes turn green. But in this moment in the story, his eyes are not green. There's a softness, there's a tenderness, and and he sees Sam and Frodo sleeping, and and he reaches out his hand to kind of touch Frodo tenderly, and Frodo kind of stirs. And that wakes Sam up. And this is the part in the story, I'm just going to read it to you, that was the only part that Tolkien said brought him to tears, caught him in his throat, rereading it. So Gollum reaches out. Sam wakes up. And Sam says, hey, you, he said roughly, what are you up to? Nothing. Nothing, said Gollum softly. Nice, master. I dare say, said Sam. But where have you been to? Sneaking off and sneaking back, you old villain. Gollum withdrew himself, and a green glint flickered under his heavy lids. Almost spider-like, he looked now, crouched back on his Bent limbs with his protruding eyes, the fleeting moment had passed beyond recall. That moment to like change his life, that moment where he was gonna like relent and turn, it had passed, the fleeting moment had passed beyond recall. And Tolkien said after writing this trilogy that he couldn't read that part without weeping. And in our gospel reading for today, we meet a man who had a moment where he was about to relent, where he had a moment where he was about to change his life, but then it passed beyond recall. And the man's name is Herod, and the story comes from Mark chapter 6, where we read this. King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that's why miraculous powers are at work in him, that is, in Jesus. Others said he's Elijah, and still others claimed he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead? For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to, because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath. Whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once, the girl hurried in to the king with the request, I want you to give me, right now, the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her, so he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in the prison, and brought back his head on a platter. Presented it to the girl and she gave it to her mother. On hearing of this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. This is one of the most sad and tragic narratives in the book, in the Gospel of Mark. And I don't mean to say that it's sad and tragic because of the life of John the Baptist. I don't mean it's a tragedy that John died how he died. The real tragedy in the story is the life of Herod. Like, that's the real tragedy. And it's like the gospel writer is saying to us today, don't let this same tragedy be your tragedy. Don't let this tragedy happen to you. Because in many ways, this passage is, it's like a passage about doubt and many of you probably, like, you hear the word doubt in church, and you're like, oh, I was raised to think, like, doubt and faith, those are opposite things, or doubt is a bad thing. But this story is, is seeking to tell us that your doubts are actually a way to make your life great if you let them. See, because in verse 20, it's a very fascinating little verse. It just says this, Herod feared John, that is John the Baptist knowing that he was a holy and righteous man, and he protected him. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he liked to listen to him. Okay, what is going on here? Well, here's what we know about Herod and the Herodian dynasty. If you go to Israel with Sandy and Susan uh, and Shimon, you are going to learn about this. Uh, The Herodian dynasty, they were colonial rulers, over Judea and Galilee. They were under imperial Rome. And one of the things colonial rulers were not to do was to kind of come in and disrupt the peace. And what Herod did was just that. I mean, he came in as a colonial ruler, and he completely offended the sensibilities of the people in that area by marrying his brother's wife. It was an ancestral relationship, and this, compl- this was completely offensive. It was a terrible, like, self-indulgent, terrible thing to do. But John the Baptist was the only one who was willing to speak truth to power. He's the only one to confront Herod. But then Herod's wife, Herodias, is mad that John the Baptist has confronted Herod, and she has him thrown in prison. But it's very interesting, because even in prison, apparently— Herod is getting John the Baptist out to do what he does, which is preach. And the passage says he liked to listen to him. Apparently, there is this place of doubt in Herod. Here's the very person who is confronting him, and yet he's bringing him out, listening to him, liking to listen to the very man who's denounced him interesting. It's revealing the doubts that are like brewing within, within Herod. Because on the one hand, Herod liked to listen to John. He must have found his preaching to be sweet or his message to, to resonate on some level. There was something in what John was saying in his words that must have touched Herod's heart on some level. That He was attracted to him. But on the other hand, it says he was also puzzled. It was kind of like, I like this, but I'm not totally sure. He was maybe paralyzed by indecision, wavering indecisively. It's like he's at this crossroads, and he is not knowing, like, should I go this way or should I go that way? Should I go with what John is saying or should I stay with my way of power and exploitation? In a way, he was like Gollum, about to relent, you know, and not turn Sam and Frodo over to the giant spider but torn about what to do, which way to go. It's like Herod wants to get on the road that John is preaching about, but he's also afraid to get on that road. Like, what are the implications going to be for his rule, for his reign, for his life? So he's pulled, he's divided. He's both like attracted to, but also afraid of what he's hearing. And this really is a picture of doubt. When the scriptures talk about doubt, it's kind of this idea of like being double-minded. We read about it in James 1 and other places. It's to see that this looks good, but so does this, and I can't choose. I can't choose between them. It's almost like if you went to the gym and there was a moving treadmill and you went to like step on the treadmill For a moment in your body, you would experience disequilibrium. You know, the treadmill is moving, and you go to step on it, and for a moment, you're going to kind of teeter, right? But it's only momentary. Like, either your body is going to adjust to the movement of that treadmill in that new way, or you're going to fall back onto the floor. There's a sense in which doubt is that moment where you're, like, kind of having spiritual vertigo, You're like, this, but this, I'm not sure, I'm not really in, I'm not really out, I'm not really on the treadmill, I'm not really off the treadmill. And you're not going to stay in that situation for long. Because you're either going to fall back, or you're going to adjust to the new. But that's where Herod was, and that is what doubt often is. It's a sense of, like, losing our balance. Not knowing where we're going to go. Two things before me. And the thing is, doubt is very normal in the life, in our lives. It is normal before coming to faith in Christ. It is normal after coming to faith in Christ. It is a normal part of the spiritual journey to experience doubt. In Psalm 73... We hear the cries of a man who, the psalmist in this, in this um, psalm believes in God, but because of the incredible suffering he's experienced, because of the incredible injustice he's experienced, he's driven to this point, this edge, where he's like lost his balance. And he cries out and he says this, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart, but as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. Like, the experience of doubt is so well represented in that psalm. Because it's almost like you're perched on a cliff, and then you're about to fall, and you're not quite sure, like, am I going to tumble, or am I going to regain my footing? W- what's going to happen here? I don't, I don't really know. And in that moment, you've, you've lost assurance. You've lost full assurance about God. You know, the psalmist didn't know why God was allowing this stuff to happen. And that's doubt. Now, for Herod, there's like this moment. There's this moment, this opportunity to change, like this window of opportunity. I mean, Herod is this man in history who is just like any other Herod in history, absolutely miserable, probably very lonely because he is all about personal power and gain, and he will stab anybody in the back to keep his power, to gain more power. When you're like that, you're very lonely. And when he hears John the Baptist, when he meets John the Baptist, when he listens to John the Baptist, what happens is Herod has this worldview that is all about getting ahead through power and exploitation. And then he meets John. John. And it's like, here is a reality in my life that I have no, it does not fit in my worldview. He meets someone who's like totally disinterested in gaining power, somebody who's like totally unafraid. And that reality of who John was got Herod's attention and it kind of threw him off balance. Now, in Religious communities, doubt is often viewed negatively. It's almost like if you have doubt, you don't have faith. And I think the reason why is because if psychological certainty is like how you merit God's blessing, then doubts just pose a big threat to God's blessing if that's your way of thinking about God. But that's not at all how the Bible talks about doubt. Remember that one time um, in Mark 9 when Jesus, uh, the man comes to Jesus and says, Would you heal my son? Jesus, will you heal my son? And Jesus says, Believe. And what does the man say? The man says, I believe. Help me with my unbelief. In other words, I believe. And I doubt, I believe, help me with my unbelief. And does Jesus say to that man, uh, buddy, would you go, like, you got to get your act together. And when you come back to me with, like, certainty on your face, when you come back to me with 100% assurance, when you come back to me completely, like, locked in on belief with no doubt, then I will heal your son. No, Jesus does not say that. The man is saying, I believe, help me with my unbelief. In other words, I don't always know everything for sure. I don't have 100% certainty. I do waffle, I stumble, I lose my footing, I struggle, I doubt. And here is why that is not a threat to your faith. Your salvation is not dependent on the confidence of your belief. Like you could think of it like if you're on the edge of a cliff and you're about to slip... You will for sure die if you fall from that cliff, and as you start to fall, you see a branch to the right, and you reach out to grab it, but you don't know for certain if that branch will hold you, but the reality is it will. How much certainty do you need to be saved by that branch? Like, if you're like 10% sure that the branch is going to hold you, are you going to be like 10% saved? No, you'll be like, you will be saved. See, because that's how it is with salvation, right? That is what grace is all about. It's not the quality of my belief. It's not the quality of my faith. It is the object of my faith. Like Jesus is the branch. It's not the certainty of my faith in the branch that saves me. It's the branch itself that saves me. And that's why we can get sideways sometimes in our thinking about faith and doubt. It's really because we don't have a deep enough understanding of grace. So, don't think of doubts as bad. They can be positive. They can be a window of opportunity. They are an invitation. In Jude, uh, the book of Jude in the Bible, it just simply says, Be merciful to those who doubt. In other words, like, do not judge or condemn or do your spiritual gaslighting on those who doubt. Be merciful to those who doubt. And I wonder, when I think about that story of Tolkien and where he was most moved in the trilogy of Lord of the Rings, I wonder if maybe the reason Tolkien cried when he read that passage about Gollum is it seems that Gollum and Herod and you and I have these moments in life when God does soften our hearts when we do become open to a new path, to a new way, to a deeper experience of God's love, sometimes that just looks like, you know, the stirring of God's Holy Spirit to maybe forgive someone who has been a, you've been nursing a grudge for a very long time. And in a moment, your heart becomes open to, to maybe handing that over and forgiving you know, or maybe you know, it's, it's like a whisper of God's Holy Spirit to give generously in like, such a way that it scares you. And just for that moment, you're like, yeah, yep, yep, yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe that's it. Or you know, maybe you've got that nudge or that um, prompting from God's Spirit to you know, adopt a child or embrace an orphan or get involved in some injustice in the world. And you have that moment of openness. the thing that I think Tolkien was moved to tears about, the thing that I think we see in this gospel reading is that that window, it does not always remain open within me. Like for Herod, he liked hearing John, but he never committed. And when his wife asked for John the Baptist's head on a platter, even though Herod was distressed about it, the real commitment, like the true allegiance of Herod's life was revealed. He had a window of opportunity to to get on a different road, the one that John was preaching about, but in the end he went back to his commitment to power and to people-pleasing. In a way you could say, like, he would rather see a man beheaded than, like, lose face at a cocktail party. This is Herod. This is who he is. It seemed that that moment of openness closed. He had not chosen. And the window of time on his soft and tender heart came to an end. And I think the thing in that to me is just like, man, if right now or if ever you have that sense of like, oh, I'm, I'm sensing a tenderness in me towards something I'm feeling God drawing me into some act of mercy or justice or love. Let's not be so arrogant to think that we have such control over our own hearts. Because even that moment is a gift from God. And so for us to just remember like those those moments, that's an invitation to step forward, to step forward even when you're afraid. I think the story reveals that we, we just have a far less control over the openness and tenderness of our own hearts than we like to think. Um, doubts, really, what they do is they, they force us to kind of reevaluate the foundation. George MacDonald said it, a Scottish writer, he, he said this very interesting thing. He said, everything difficult in life, everything difficult, indicates something more than your theory of life yet embraces everything difficult indicates something more than your theory of life yet embraces what he means is when we get into difficulty when we get into struggle when we have doubts you know why something has come into my life that shows That my existing theory of life, my existing thoughts about God are inadequate. They cannot deal with the reality that's before me. I was reading this really interesting story the other day, just, you know, really probably very common and maybe many of you similar, but a story about a woman who had a very strong faith in God, but then she experienced horrible, terrible things, And kind of like that psalmist in Psalm 73, like, her her feet began to slip. She totally lost her her, um, assurance. She struggled with doubt. She was saying, like, how could God allow these things to happen? She began to waver. She was just having that, like, spiritual vertigo feeling. And then, over a bit of time, there was, like, a single question that liberated her. From that fog. And the question was this, if God could allow his most committed, like perfectly committed servant Jesus to suffer horribly for redemptive purposes that like nobody could see at the time, nobody could discern at the time, no one could understand, then why wouldn't God allow less committed servants of his to also suffer with redemptive, wise purposes in the suffering as well. And the reason that that liberated her was because she said up until that point, she believed that God could not ever let really, really bad things happen to good people. But then she started to understand that if God never, ever allowed anything really bad to happen to someone really good, she couldn't experience salvation because what is the cross? It's a really bad thing happening to a really good person. And her doubts and her struggles, like, became this invitation. Her actual, her spiritual vertigo, her confusion, her feet falling, her, oh. whoa, I've lost my footing, it, it actually became the doorway, it became the path, it became the invitation into a deeper life of love, of suffering with Christ, and with all humanity. She realized that her God before was like too small for the real wor- world, and that her understanding of God was not like the full biblical understanding of God. is how doubts can be a gift. Reality presents us with something, and our theories about God and life cannot yet embrace that, and we kind of teeter. But if you will stay the course, if you will keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, if we will bring our doubts honestly to him, we can be drawn into a deeper and a wiser and a more sturdy and more mature life of faith. And in that way, your doubts are like they're actually a way to make your life quite great if you'll let them. Let's pray as we close. God, we thank you for this story, for this message in your gospel. We thank you that you are the branch that catches us when we fall. We pray, God, for your wisdom and love to just win the day in our lives, when doubts start to arise and when our feet begin to slip. And God, we confess just how often we see ourselves as the captains of our own ships. We confess just how often we see ourselves as the ones in control of those moments of openness in our hearts and our lives. And we admit, God, that any prompting towards love, any nudge, towards goodness, towards generosity, any openness whatsoever towards you, towards your beloved creation, God, first and foremost, that is a gift that you give, that you've placed that that very desire, even if it's just a flicker, that you've placed it in us, that you're the one God who opens up our hearts. And so I just pray, God, right now for anybody who is sensing and openness towards your leading in some area, would you give them wisdom? Though they may feel afraid, God, would you place your courage on your beloved ones today? And I pray that we might step forward with you hand in hand, even when we tremble. We thank you. We love you. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Amen.